Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Father, thank you for giving us encouragement in your word to walk this heavenly walk and um, deliver us out of our heritage, Lord, from the old flesh. It's been done. We claim it. We reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Thank you, Father. Amen. Well, we're going to continue with Walk in Heavenly Places by Faith, in number eight. I want to share with you a little teaching on what is perfection. So much of the church rails against perfection, but it's all over the Bible. An unbeliever um, is accounted perfect by faith in the beginning, obviously. He claims his perfection by faith. He doesn't rail against it. Uh, Hebrews 10 and 14 says, By one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So if you're sanctified, you're in line for perfection, right? As he walks in this faith, God is able to manifest perfection in him. And if the unbelieving apostate Christian claims that he is always going to be a sinner, contrary to God's word, he will have what he says, according to Jesus. In Mark 11 and 23, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that what he saith cometh to pass, he shall have it. Therefore I say unto you, All things whatsoever you pray and ask for, did you pray and ask for perfection? You will after you listen to this. <laughs> uh, believe you have received it. Yeah. Ask, believe that ye received them, and you shall have them. Matthew 8 and 13. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And Matthew 9 and 29, according to your faith, be it done unto you. The same thing can be said of sanctification or holiness. Study and see if these things are not so. There is no more important study if we want to grow up in Christ, because as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. It's important what you believe. So we must believe only the Word. It's the seed in the text of the parable of the sower. Uh, sometimes it's translated, it is come from the Greek word sperma. Jesus said that the seed is the Word. Only the seed of the Word can bring forth the fruit of our heart, of Jesus Christ. It is God's sperm 
and brings forth after his kind. But only in the good ground. You have to have a a broken and good ground. We'll get to that too. Uh, Jesus said, some would be a hundredfold. This is not souls won by us for this crop is grown in our heart. It has nothing to do with winning souls. There's a whole lot of people out there never win a hundred souls. Okay. So Matthew 13 and 23 says, And he that was sown upon the good ground, this is he that heareth the word. There's the seed going into the heart, right? And understandeth it, who verily beareth fruit, and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, and some sixty, and some thirty. Hundredfold, you would think that's perfection. Well, it is in this parable. Matthew 13 and 19, When any one heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the evil one, and snatcheth away that which has been sown in his heart. We have seen this happen to people. Uh, people that fall into faction, uh, it's taken away from them. They've even told me. And their, their doctrine reverses right back to where they came from in the apostate church. See? Uh, so, he snatches away. that If it doesn't bear fruit, he snatches it away. Give it to somebody else. Jesus pointed out in his parables, if you don't bear fruit, I'll take it and give it to someone else. Well, this is he that was sown by the wayside. If we believe man rather than God, we will miss the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3 and 12 says, Not that I have already obtained or am already made perfect. In other words, he's not saying it's already manifested. Okay, But I press on, if so be that I may lay hold on that which I also was laid hold on by Christ Jesus. What's he talking about? Jesus uh, laid hold on you to bring you to that hundredfold. That's what he laid hold on you for. Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold. In other words, he has not yet manifested his perfection. But now listen. But one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, this is important, and stretching forward to the things which are before, I press on towards the goal unto the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In this text, he's talking about perfection. He's talking about that hundredfold. You're pressing forward to it. How do you do that? Well, he's going to tell you. 15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect. There it is right there. Be thus minded. What does he mean by that? He says, by faith you have taken hold of this. You've been given this gift. You look in the mirror and you see Jesus. Is he a hundredfold? Of course he is. So you look in the mirror and you see Jesus. And you claim that. And and then you manifest it according to 2 Corinthians 3 and 18. Right? And if in anything you're otherwise minded, in other words, we're talking to some people right now. You're not thinking right. This also shall God reveal unto you. This is perfect by faith. Okay, first you start out perfect by faith. And then you end up there because you have claimed this by faith. And perfection is ascribed to Noah, Genesis 6 and 8, 
on down, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations uh, of Noah. Noah was a righteous man and perfect in his generations. See, in your generation, that could mean with the knowledge that you have, with the teaching that you have, you're walking in what you know, okay? Perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Amen. Well, it was much simpler back then. It's getting a little more complicated now. Uh, Jacob was another one. Numbers 23 and 21. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. David, 1 Kings 11 and 4. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect uh, with uh, the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. David was perfect-hearted. In what he knew in that day, he walked in what he knew. And Asa, 1 Kings 15 and 14, But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was perfect with the Lord all his days. He was doing what he knew, right? Uh, Job, Job 1 and 1, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and turned away from evil. Job was walking in what he knew. God gave a correction to him, and when he accepted the correction and repented, he stayed perfect, because <laughs> now he was walking in what he knew, you see. Um, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Luke 1 and 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Hmm. So, perfection is implied concerning many people in the Bible. Here's Enoch, Genesis 5 and 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Aha! Did he do that with anybody around him? Well, no, I guess that means he was the one, right? Elijah, Second Kings 2.11, And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Hmm, did anybody else around him get that gift? Well, no, I would say that was an honor, right? Daniel, Ezekiel uh, 14 and 14. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, there they are, were in, in it they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord. Aha! Yep, the righteous will be delivered. You see it very clearly there. And some scriptures that relate to this perfection, Genesis 17 and 1. When Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be thou perfect. <laughs> Is God going to command you to do something that you cannot do? Well, no. Deuteronomy 5 and 32. 
You shall observe to do, therefore, as the Lord your God hath commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Well, there it is. That's, that sounds like perfect to me. Deuteronomy 18 and 13. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. There it is again. The command. Joshua 23 and 6. Therefore be ye very courageous and keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that you turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left. 1 Kings 8 and 61. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God, there it is, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. Some people say you can't do that. Oh, well, if you have faith, you will do that. Faith has fruit, and it is the work of God in your heart. First Chronicles 28 9. And thou... Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. There you go. First Chronicles 29 and 19. And give unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and do all these things, and to build the palace for which I have made provision. So here's the perfect heart. Um, keep the commandments, the testimonies, the statutes. There's no fear of God in the people of God in these days. You can tell them, look, you're breaking the law of God right here. They will ignore you. They can't be perfect. Job 9 and 20. Though I be righteous, mine own mouth shall condemn me. Though I be perfect, it shall prove me perverse. Now, I am perfect. I regard not myself. I despise my life. There it is. And that's the position of anybody that's on the road to perfection, right? They regard not themselves. They despise their old life. They're walking towards God. Psalm 18 and 32. The God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. Psalm 37 and 31. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. Uh, 37. Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for there is a happy end to the man of peace. Psalm 101 and 2. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Good confessions of faith there. And we should all learn to do that because God will bring it to pass. Psalm 106 and 3. Blessed are they that keep justice and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Amen. Psalm 119 and 1. Blessed are they that are perfect in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. See, you, you're only going to be able to do what you already know. You're perfect in the way is you're doing what you know to do where you are on this path, you see, towards God. They walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 2, Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with the whole heart. 
Yea, they do no unrighteousness. They walk in His ways. Amen. Psalm 119, 96. I have seen an end of all perfection. <clears throat> That's where we want to end up at the end, right? <laughs> but thy commandment is exceedingly broad. Yes, yeah, so how can you say you can be uh, perfect in the way, but you're learning things every day, right? And that's when you need to walk in them too. Proverbs 2.21 says, For the upright shall dwell in the land, and the perfect shall remain in it. We see people that prove that they're not perfect, and they get removed from the land. Okay, Matthew 5 and 6. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Filled with righteousness, right? Matthew 5 and 48. Ye therefore shall be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ooh. Does God have a purpose in doing that? Yes, He does. Matthew 19 and 21. Jesus said unto him, If thou wouldest be perfect... Go, sell that which thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Well, the rich young ruler had a problem, you know, and that was the key of it right there. If he would have done that, he would have been well on his way. Uh, Luke 6 and 40. The disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is perfected, shall be as his teacher. Amen. As his teacher. That's the whole purpose of Jesus coming. First Corinthians 2 and 6. We speak wisdom, however, among them that are full grown. Another word that sometimes is, this is uh, translated uh, perfect. Full grown. Full grown what? What's full grown? Jesus is full grown. You behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord. You're transformed into that same image from glory to glory. He's full grown. Yet a wisdom not of this world, nor of the rulers of this world who are coming to naught. Second Corinthians 7 and 1. Having therefore these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Yes, perfecting holiness and second corinthians 13 and 9 for we rejoice when we are weak and ye are strong this we also pray for even your poor perfecting perfecting second corinthians 13 11 finally brethren farewell be perfected be comforted be of the same mind and live in peace and the god of love and of peace shall be with you. Ephesians 4, 11, on down. And he gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. That's the whole purpose for them to be here. Unto the work of ministering, unto the building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man, there it is again, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I didn't write that. It's written by God. 
God wants to replicate Jesus in you. Philippians 1 and 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and void of offense unto the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are through Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Philippians 2 and 15, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you are seen as lights in the world. Yes, we we're, should be a light to the church around us because the church has fallen into gross corruption. Colossians 1 and 21, And you, being in time past alienated and enemies in your mind and in your evil works, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. That's the process right there. Colossians uh, 1 and 28. Whom we proclaim admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. There it is. That's our job, perfect in Christ. Colossians 2 and 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in him you are made full, who is the head of all principality and power, in whom you were also circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands, in the putting off of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Colossians 3 and 14. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. You know, there are people who can't stand to be around people who love. And uh, they actually reject themselves from being around people of love because it is the bond of perfectness. If a person loves you, they will pray for you. They will believe for you. They will enter into your faith uh, to bless you and so on. Colossians 4 and 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus, saluteth you, always striving for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. You say, some people say, that, well, what does it mean by perfect? It means doing what you know to do, walking with the Lord, walking in His uh, teachings, His revelations, and so on and so forth. Some people have a, uh, an idea of perfect as a Jesus which you can never attain to. That's not what the Scripture says, as we've already read, right? First Thessalonians 3 and 10 Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and may perfect that which is lacking in your faith. First Thessalonians 3 and 13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Second Timothy 2 and 1. Thou therefore, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
Yes, 2 Timothy 3 and 17, that the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work. Amen. Hebrews 6 and 1, Wherefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ, let us press on unto perfection. There it is. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith towards God. Some churches, that's all they preach. That's all they preach. They never believe nor teach that you should press on unto perfection. Hebrews 10 and 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now there again is your faith, right? You believe it and accept it at that time. And then you walk in it by doing what you know to do. And asking God, of course, for all grace that you need to accomplish that. Hebrews 13 and 20. Now the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of an eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus, make you perfect in every good thing to do his will. Working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. James 1 and 4. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. Yes, patience. James 1 and 25. But he that looketh into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and so continueth, being not a hearer that forgetteth, but a doer that worketh, this man shall be blessed in his doing. James 3 and 2. For in many things we all stumble, and if any stumble not in word, the same is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body also. 1 Peter 5 and 10. And the God of all grace, who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ, after that you have suffered a little while, shall himself perfect, establish, and strengthen you. First John 2 and 5. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily hath the love of God been perfected. Yes, if you love him, you will keep his word, right? Hereby we know that we are in him. First John 3 and 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither knoweth him. My little children, let no man lead you astray. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that doeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. To this end was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And whosoever is begotten of God or born of God, same word, doeth no sin, because his seed abideth in him, and he cannot sin. See, the seed doesn't abide in the person who the devil comes and snatches it out of their heart, because they didn't value it enough to obey it and bear the fruit of it. All right, he cannot sin because he is begotten of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. 
Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. 1 John 4 and 12, No man hath beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abideth in us, and his love is perfected in us. We know that whosoever is begotten of God sinneth not, but he that was begotten of God keepeth himself, and the evil one toucheth him not. Okay, I think that's a pretty good foundation for understanding this one. We called it Rivers of Living Water, Samuel Fire, and it was somewhere around the middle of 2019. I sought deliverance of spirits I did not know much about, but I knew that they were not Christ, and they had to go. A brother and sister who follow Christ led me through deliverance with Scripture, and I confessed and repented of any sin related to these spirits. And as they prayed, and I felt these spirits leaving, in my mind I was praying in the Spirit in tongues, thinking of the Lord Jesus." I went over the thoughts of my deliberate and intentional complete life giving to uh, Christ in the baptism I had, and scriptures such as His blood removes all spots and blemishes, washed whiter than snow, etc. In a state of relaxing to not hinder the Lord to do as required, I did not want to restrict Him in any way. It was at this moment I started to have a vision. Throughout this vision, I spoke out loud what I saw and immediately to the two next to me. I first saw what seemed like a covering or a sheet, uh, completely obscuring my eyesight. We all with an unveiled face. Behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are transformed into that same image from glory to glory. So here is a covering, okay, completely obscuring my eyesight to, the, to only see a clouded view of white light. I couldn't see any dimensions, just this white light with no variance or tone difference. There were not any floors or structures completely, just blank white area everywhere, and I looked and perceived. Faintly, very far off, <clears throat> much like the distance of stars at night, a red, similar to a traffic light stop signal color, uh, slowly came into view. It came closer and brighter, and eventually was as close to me as uh, though across opposite to me, but not that it was within arm's reach. Because I was calling out everything I saw to uh, the fellow brother and sister, I heard them speak out, Command to confess, Is Lord Jesus come in the flesh? Okay, so they're uh, wanting to check this out in whatever way they thought right. Mm hmm this I did, as I remember also the scripture regarding this, to test all things unto God. As soon as I spoke out this, the red light withdrew. It departed very quickly, uh, almost instantly. I then only saw the white area and resumed to think on the Lord. 
but was confused and thought, what is going on? Then a really beautiful blue color appeared, similar to a midday clear sky blue. That's beautiful. Everybody loves that, right? This was immediate and filled all in front of my peripheral view and came very close to where all I could see was this vibrant blue light. I immediately said, Confess Lord Jesus is come in the flesh. In other words, he picked up on what the others had said and he tried that. The most soft and sweet voice replied, Yes, my child, come. I felt and I saw this light seem to reach out uh, a hand. I was very hesitant and very cautious. The last thing I wanted was to interact, to go where any evil thing tried to trick me. It was uh, through, it was though the, this light knew what I thought. And I remembered the time I came to Christ and was sure that this is the Lord Jesus himself. I was amazed and I knew that this was just like uh, the feeling I had when I had a revelation of God and the Lord Jesus. I received a hug that was from Christ. He then smiled at me as I only saw a blue light form and he gently lifted uh, his other arm and pointed ahead. I looked ahead to where he pointed and the view changed as the white light lifted and I saw hills of beautiful clean green with few bushy trees dotted around. It felt he pointed at a particular tree at the peak of a hill and to go to this spot. So not knowing, I moved there and seemed to sit down and rest under the shade and lean on the trunk. Well, trees can represent a body of people, you know, and uh, as in Scripture is pointed out, especially in Daniel. My view changed to look down a hill to a river which had a forest of trees alongside of it. This river was so clean that I could see the bottom. I felt so compelled to run down and jump in. Well, I think everybody's had this feeling about um, drawing near to Christ and getting revelation in His Word, enjoying it, you know. Revelation 22, 1 and 2 says, And He showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal. So it was nice and clear. And this represents the pure word. Proceeding out of the throne of God, which is, of course, in our heart, and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street thereof, and on this side of the river, and on that was the tree of life. Well, the Bible says the tongue of the righteous is a tree of life in the original language. Bearing twelve manner of fruits, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the pure word flowing from the heart of the pure will uh, bring life wherever it goes. And upon nearing close to the river's edge, there were other beings, whether they were other humans or angels, I have no idea. 
I, well, I believe it is other humans, others also partaking of the pure word. They were uh, all playing and splashing and being very happy and playful. All I could see was happiness and hear laughter all around. Yes, smiles and joy were on everyone, full of energy and excitement. I just ran into the river and plunged in completely, submerging under that every part of me was under the water. Amen. So that's the baptism of death to self, right? The Word of God puts to death the old man. That's why it's a cleansing of the washing of the water with the Word. Coming out, I then felt very strange, like a very young child around nine years of age. I had this urge to run over to everyone I saw nearby and play tag and touch everyone I could out of sheer excitement and joy to be among everyone there. Well, we have to become as little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18 and 3 says, And he said, Verily I say unto you, except you turn and become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then the vision faded and stopped, and I saw in the physical. But the feeling of it all was echoing, and I had difficulty in focusing on the two brethren next to me. I was in such joy as though all this dirtiness had left, and I felt truly loved and accepted. Yep, if you get cleansed of all that old baggage you're bringing around with you, hauling everywhere, you know you have this kind of fellowship one with another, the Bible says, right? Please know of all my love to all who read this, know and believe that he loves you more, and he can show you this. Praise be to the Lord of hosts and the King of kings forever. Glory, honor, and might to him for our Father and for all eternity. Okay, we call this one Journey to God, Anonymous 2.24.23. My heart desires to be as close to God as possible, and I want it all the time, but there's always things trying to prevent it, and I wondered why. And then I felt this in response. I saw a very long straight road that went up and down hills, and it was com- and it was sometimes flat. I felt that this meant that he is always here with me every moment, and he is everywhere all at once. But to obtain the relationship and closeness that I want with him permanently, and every second it is a journey to get there. Yep, and we go up and down and, and sometimes a little back and forth, you know. But we're headed in the right direction. And the, the, the more we go, the more we can walk straight. The long road is the journey to be as close as possible to our Father and Jesus, although it seems so far away in time. Uh, in God's eyes, it already is. Yes, that's true. The hills are different trials, and the bumps in our walk 
but we always want to stay on the right and on only path to our Father. It's called the highway of holiness or separation from the world unto God, right? And no matter what trial, tribulation, or distraction comes our way, true, true. The sky was blue and the sun was shining and there were many trees on either side of the road. But there were also houses and animals and so many things on either side. There are are so very many distractions in the physical and spiritual that try to hinder us from seeking His presence every moment and going deeper into Him. In the vision, although God's creation is beautiful, it can also become uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It can be a distraction because it is all passing away. And all that matters right now is going further into Jesus and with our Heavenly Father. The houses, views, animals, etc. all represent different distractions and these lusts. 1 John two fifteen through 17 does say that. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the vainglory of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Further in the distance, where the straight road was going, was a large body of water, like the ocean, But just before that, there was a large amount of bush that could only be accessed by walking. I felt that the bush that can only be walked through and not driven through is walking with Jesus and great tribulation and or greater dying to self. Not being able to drive is uh, letting our Father guide us and have control of our lives or letting Jesus take control. If we let Him take control when going through the trials, He will guide us to Him and the right way, and we won't get lost. But if we try to guide ourselves or go our own way, uh, we can get lost, hurt or worse and we will die before our time. Well, of course, you know, uh, the the desire, of course, is to hold fast to the Word through whatever trial you go through. If you turn loose of the Word, you're going to get corrupted by the trial. So many things can go wrong when bushwalking, snakes, tripping, etc. And it's hard to see far because of the bush everywhere. But God is high above and can see all and more than we can see so that we need to pray for His wisdom and knowledge and understanding. True. We need to pray our way through these trials. Above the water I saw the Father watching, but as if He was waiting for me. I felt the water represents fully dead to self and fully manifesting the Word. Rivers of living water and resurrection life. 
The Father above all is seeing, watching, and waiting for all his plans and precepts to play out or manifest. I felt once we get through the road, bush, and the water, we will be even closer to him than we desire or could imagine. Every moment, permanently. We want to be as close to him as possible every single moment, but it is a journey for us to get there and for every part of our soul and body to get there. God put the desire in us to want to be with him and to be even closer to him as he wants us to be with him and as close to him more than we want it. Well, we know that this journey is a faith walk as described above. A faith walk. You constantly have to believe those promises to keep on going in the right direction and not get off on the right or the left, right? The sun is always shining bright. The sun is always showing his light to all who walk on the earth, uh, have the chance to choose his way, his life. The sun's light allows us to see the path to God and how to get there, just as the light of the sun shows the road, bushes, and path, and bush, and the Father above. If it was all dark and without the sun, uh, we couldn't see the pathway. Just as without the light of Jesus and his word and the light he made through his sacrifice, we couldn't see the way to the Father. Jesus is the light, he is the word of God, and the path of righteousness, which he leads us on. In Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, so it shows us where we are, and a light unto my path, so it shows us where to go. And Psalm 43 and 3 says, O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me into thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. So he's headed towards Zion, which is that perfection we talked about. The people that get distracted on the journey can still look over and see the path and the right way because Jesus already prepared it and his light shows it. But they choose to still look away from the path and to look at the distraction. People come along and point them to the right path, and they look over at the right path for a little because the sun is still shining. They can still see it, but they continue to not choose the right way. But they can see it, as everyone in this earth can see the light. Jesus in the spiritual, just like they can see everything when the sun is out in the physical. Yes, true. Uh, surrounded in a shell. This is anonymous. Three twelve twenty three. I saw myself with this shell all around me, and it was black, and it looked like hard plastic and it reminded me of plastic containers. However, rather than being a rectangle shape, it was a weird shape to fit my physical form. So, 
many people have this hard plastic shell on. They can't get close to you, um, and they won't let you get close to them. And a lot of times this is rejection and fear of rejection and criticism that rises up in their heart, which eventually, if they don't deal with it, they will be separated, right? Well, this hard shell could be our own creation of a protective barrier we place around ourselves from being hurt by the world or more likely hurt by our own heart and our own thoughts caused by rejection and pain from others, fears, etc. It represents the old nature of man, the flesh. It is hard, like the outer shell of a nut or a clam. It is black from a life of sin before being saved by the Lord. And some people, they don't ever arrive at that place of being fully saved by the Lord. I saw the Lord grab the shell and rip it off so quickly and easily, and it felt like a Band-Aid quickly being ripped off. Although the shell was really hard and thick, and in the natural it would be hard to cut it, uh, let alone to rip it, but it was so easy for the Lord. Oh, I know people have felt that shell And it is easy for the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Repent. Confess it. Confess your sin. Repent. uh, Confess uh, the sin of rejection and fear of rejection because this will lead you to faction. And we see it constantly. We can't succeed or be set free from evil or our past heritage in our own strength. We need Jesus. Only Jesus has the power and strength to remove all the evil from our lives and set us free from our sins by His finished work at the cross. It is His grace and faith in the gospel that truly saves us. Amen. All of the shell fell to the ground, and all that was left of me was my form as a glowing, warm light. So that's Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? Colossians 1 and 27, To whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of His glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what we see is only faith in the good news has power over sin. Galatians 2 and 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the good confession. You speak it and believe it, and God will do it. And it is no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me. Another good confession. And that life which I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith, the faith which is in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Amen. Where the heart is, is what we call this, and this is Marie Kelton, eight twelve twenty two. The Lord gave me an open vision of my spirit man walking in my old home. Well, this could represent the body, your body, which is your old home. It's not your new home, right? <laughs> and all the lights were on. As I got to the hallway, everything went dark. 
The light was only shining where I was standing. The vision changed and all the lights were on again. The Lord was standing at the front door on the inside. Well, the Lord comes into our hearts to live, and He is the light of the truth. He is the Word of God. Revelation 3 and 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Yep, fellowshipping with Jesus around the food of the Word of God, right? John 1, 4 through 5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness apprehended it not. I saw there was uh, arguing in the house. I knew the Lord wanted to heal me from all that went on while I was there. I had asked the Lord why in the vision was I at my old home, and I heard home is where the heart is. Yeah. Um, some people are stuck on their heritage, and they don't ever break free of it because it's a heritage of sin passed down through generations, right? Jesus and our Father live in our hearts when we get saved, and our home is not of this world, but the kingdom of heaven. That's our new home, right? In John 14 and 23, we're told, If a man love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Notice it's future tense. Uh, if you do this, you'll keep his word. My Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. There's that new abode. And John seventeen sixteen and 17 says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And the Lord knows that all the thoughts of our hearts, He wants us to surrender our old self-life and the past to Him. And put it all behind us. And uh, don't look back. Right? And this is so that he can heal every wound that we receive back there. And when we're saved, we become a new creature in Christ. And we belong to him by the sacrifice of his redeeming blood. And with our hearts, we surrender to him through faith. And we have a right to grace, which opens the door to all the healing benefits and all the benefits. And Psalm 147 and 3 says, He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. In Psalm 34 and 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as are of a contrite spirit. Philippians 3 and 13, Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, you should do that, and stretching forward to the things which are before. Amen. To remember not the former things, Isaiah 43 and 18 says, for they've passed away in Christ, right? Amen.
Well, God is so awesome. You know, He's calling us to perfection. He wants us to claim it along the road uh, and entitles the trial that we are in at the moment. This is one that you overcome so that you may go to the next one. And this is a gradual bringing into maturity and perfection through obedience to the Word of God, which comes from your faith in the promises of God. Well, Father, we ask you in Jesus' name to be with us in everything. Give us grace and draw us unto you, and don't let us be distracted by the wicked things around us. Lord, help us to hold fast the confession of our hope that it waver not, for he is faithful that promised. Amen. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We want to please you. We want to love you and keep your commandments. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless you and keep you. And uh, Michael Harris is going to come and share a word with you. Bless Michael. Bless the word. Bless the people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Father, in the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus, I praise you and I glorify you, Father, for your excellent word that you've given us, this standard that we walk by. And I thank you for it, Father. I thank you, Lord, that uh, you've told us in here about the bride. You've told us about the man-child. And you've given David some revelations in, in uh, both the man-child and the bride. And, Father, I ask that you be with me today as we uh, go over some things about the man-child and the bride that will refresh people's memory. And I thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Well, that's actually what I want to talk about today is uh, the man-child and the bride briefly, just to uh, remind you what... Uh, the teaching was on that. It's going to, I call it the revelation of the bride and the man-child. <clears throat> Started out in Exodus chapter 11 and verses 4 through 7. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that's behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts or cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. Well, we know that Egypt represents the world and the firstborn. <clears throat> and in this case, it represents the carnal man, because those who are born of the world the firstborn is the carnal man. God has pronounced in a type and a shadow here in our day the death of the carnal man. And as you know, there's probably more death going on around us right now in the world than there has been in my history. It's nothing compared to what's coming down the road, folks. There'll be some great devastation of people here shortly. <clears throat> well, this type and shadow was leading up to a Passover over in chapter 12. 
And it's pretty interesting that a Passover happened before they went into the wilderness. You know, we're coming out of the world and we're going into the wilderness. And then we're going into the promised land, glory to God. And also, after the Passover, there was a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And then they left Egypt. That seven-day feast of unleavened bread, which he told them if he found any leaven in their houses in that seven days, they were going to be cut off from among the people of God. And this seven days represents the tribulation period. So there's a Passover before the tribulation period. And I believe that this Passover has to do with the judgments that we're seeing right now. There's a lot of judgments that are coming upon the world in order that they can build this one world order. So we're having a Passover here at the beginning of the seven days. Now, let's look at the other parable. They were at the end of their time in Egypt, and they were leaving. And at the end of that time in Egypt, there was a Passover. So you see, we're looking at two different parables here. Now we're seeing that there was a Passover at the beginning, and now there's one at the end. At this Passover at the end, we know there's going to be a, uh, a world war. There's going to be a disease. There's going to be famines. There's going to be all kinds of bad things going on at that particular time. But God's going to protect his people once again. And of course, we who know and have eaten the whole lamb know that we do have a Passover lamb and that the old man has got to die. The old man of Egypt has got to die. This old flesh man has got to go, folks. Not one that is not born from above is going to make it. And that includes your old man too. You contracted with God through your baptism and you believed with him that your old man is dead and he's crucified. He don't live anymore because he's been your whole problem, your whole life and mine too. So we praise God that we've got a new man now. We're a new creation, a new man born from above, and the old man is dead, glory to God. And God pronounced death upon the firstborn of Egypt, and the firstborn of Egypt is the flesh, the old man with that sin nature. And he goes on to say in verse uh, 7, Exodus 11 and 7, <clears throat> but against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that you may know how that the Lord doth make a distinction between the Egyptians and Israel. Well, amen to that. He does make a distinction. There's a distinction between that old man and the new man. And the old man in us has got to die. And the old man in the world has to die. There ain't no eternal life for that old man, you know. <clears throat> in Exodus 12 and 12, it says, For I will go through the land of Egypt in that night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Well, amen. God's going to do it, folks. He's doing it at the beginning of this seven-year tribulation. He's done it. He's going to take people out. Now, the things we're seeing right now is going to cause the world to try to pull together frantically and try to make it through what they see is coming, including the economy. 
Uh, how many of you know the economy is being destroyed every day right now? Well, <clears throat> some of you might be saying, well, what about the powers that be? They are forcing. Well, yeah, of course they are. I don't care about them. They, all they are just vessels of dishonor. They don't have any authority or sovereignty that God has. So you really don't have to worry about them. And that's, and that puts peace in my heart. Praise God. Now let's look at verse, uh, 29, Exodus 12 and 29. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captain that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. In every house, there was at least one dead. Well, our body is the house, and the firstborn of the house has to die. In our house, there will be at least one dead, spiritual man or natural man. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty six. How be it that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual? Well, what's born first is the natural man. He's always the carnal man because of the fall. First it's the carnal man, then it's the spiritual man. And he says in Exodus 13 and 2, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn whatsoever open the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast. It is mine. Well, sanctified, that means to make holy. This represents the spiritual man who is sanctified. He cursed the carnal man. He blessed the spiritual man. And then, of course, we got 1 Corinthians 15 explains first the natural, then the spiritual. Now, Exodus 13 and 3 says this, And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of the hand of hand the Lord, for by strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out of this place. There shall no leaven bread be eaten. This day, well, what's this day? Well, it's the day that he cursed the firstborn of Egypt, and he blessed the firstborn of Israel. This happened the day they came out from Egypt. Was it a physical coming out of Egypt? No, it wasn't because on that day they didn't leave Egypt. What it was was a spiritual coming out of Egypt. And of course, when we come to the Lord and we repent and we receive that born again spirit, that's the beginning of our spiritual man. And it's also the very same day the curse comes upon the old man and then we come into agreement with it. We get baptized for the death of the old man and the resurrection life of the new man, glory to God. That's the fullness of it. And that's what we believe and we pray for it. God understands better than us at this particular point in time. That is the time we come out of Egypt and are born again of the Spirit. He understands better than us that this old man is our mortal enemy. And if he has his way, he'll, we will go straight to hell. You can't live the life of a carnal man and go to heaven. There's a lot of Christians, so-called Christians, 
that are in the Lord for many years and still don't get that revelation that God wants to crucify that old man. He's your mortal enemy. And if he has your way or his way, you're going to die. You'll die worse than a physical death. You'll die a spiritual death and eternal death. And we, by the grace of God, have been getting this revelation and this understanding that we are supposed to cooperate with God in the crucifixion of the old man, that we might live forever. Because if you don't lose your life, you won't gain your life. And in the parable, it's real clear. And if you go to Christian churches, you'd never know it. But in the parable, it's very clear that God wants the death of that old man. That's his mortal enemy. And our mortal enemies also. Take an axe to that mortal enemy of yours. Exodus 13 and 3 again. This day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord has brought you out of this place. Of course, it isn't by us using him or Jesus. It was by the strength of his hand that he made Pharaoh turn loose. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. Well, amen to that. We've got to stay away from the leaven of the Pharisees, don't we? And the leaven of the Sadducees and the leaven of Herod. We've got to stay away from what defeats and destroys the whole purpose of God. God's got a plan here, folks, and the man is always trying to set it aside, always, because man desires to keep his old life. But God's telling us, no, you can't do that. Exodus 13 and 4, this day came ye out in the month of it, and it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which ye swear unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey, that thou shalt keep this service in this month. Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread. That's the warning that for those seven days or that 70th week of Daniel, we have to partake of only the word of God. We can't add to it and we can't take away from it. We can't add our leaven to it to make it more palatable. We've got to take it with the bitter herb, just like we've been told. Yeah, it's bitter on the flesh, and the seventh day shall be a feast unto the Lord. And you better believe that it's going to be an awesome day, glory to God. The seventh day, the unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days. And there shall no leavened bread be seen, neither shall there be leavened seen with thee in all of thy borders. And thou shalt tell thy son in that day. It is because of that that the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be for a sign for thee upon thy hand as a memorial between thine eyes or thy eyes. This is about, folks, about finding the word on your hand and forehead. That's a sign of the beast in Revelation on the hand and the forehead. You either have the mark of the Savior or the mark of the beast. There ain't no middle ground. There ain't no fence straddling. A mind full of the word of God or a mind full of the world. So part of this is unleavened bread in the mind and on the back of the hand being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's part of this 
this uh, Passover we talked about. This is part of this curse and blessing. It's the new man coming for us, that new creation. He is made. He is being formed out of the word of God. And that word of God has to become flesh in us just like it did in Jesus. We're going to walk like Jesus, folks, if you're just a tune to tune your mind and your body and your air, all forces of you to the word of God. Exodus 13 and 13. And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck. And all the firstborn of man among thy sons shalt thou redeem. Well, that's pretty interesting there. That is one long run on sentence. Well, I wonder what he's trying to say. He said, either redeem the ass with a lamb or break his neck. And he puts a big hand in there. And all the firstborn of man among thy sons shalt thou redeem. You know, a lot of people think of an ass or a donkey as a very lowly, stupid creature. But he's putting it all in one sentence here with man. I think the Lord is trying to help us understand something here. Because we are real, we are very lowly, stupid creature unless we're born again. In fact, man has no preeminence above the beast, according to what Solomon told us. And I know there are people who say that man is such a higher creation than the beast, but not if he's not born again. He is. He's just another beast that follows after his instincts and fleshly desires. And we're going to see in the days to come the total depravity of man. Look, we're seeing it right now. It's how wicked men can be. And we're seeing a lot of it right now. We're seeing things we hadn't seen before. Depraved thinking, depraved leadership, and their ability to want to wipe out humanity. You know, man that comes into authority that's not born again is probably the most dangerous thing there is out there. Because animals don't do what these men do. That's why it has to die. Exodus 13 and 14. And it shall be when thy son asks thee in time to come, saying, What is this that thou shalt say unto him? By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. Yes, from being in bondage to the old man he had brought us out. And it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beasts. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all that opens the womb, being males, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Well, what is this sacrifice of the firstborn of the land of Egypt? And if you'll notice, he says, Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all that opens the womb, being male, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Well, when he's talking about sacrificing, he's talking about sacrificing that old man. The Lord is sacrificing the old man in order to redeem his firstborn, his son, his spiritual man in us. And the one who has eternal life, the one who will have eternal life with the Father in heaven, but he's going to 
uh, to do a fleshly sacrifice of that old man in order to bring it to fruition. And thou shalt be for a sign upon, it goes on and says, it shall be for a sign upon thy hand and for frontness between thy eyes, for strength of hand, and the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt. Praise be to God. Then Exodus 32 and 1 says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters. Bring them unto me. And all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereon too and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Moses interceded, but God's wrath hadn't been totally pacified. Exodus 32 and 25, And when Moses saw that the people were broken loose, for Aaron had let them loose for a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoso is on the Lord's side, let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Put ye every man his sword upon his thigh, go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. And Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. Yea, every man against his son and against his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. And it came to pass on the bar that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now, I will go up unto the Lord, peradventure I shall make atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, block me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against him, me, him will I blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord smote the people 
because they made the calf which Aaron, Aaron made. And whoso was on the Lord's side, and it was the sons of Levi that were in disagreement about that golden calf, the true ministers of the Lord were in a disagreement with this golden calf situation. And they were willing to put to death the old man, that is, those who had fallen into corruption with the sword, the word of God. Listen, if you are a true minister of God and you see your brethren worshiping the golden calf, which a lot of them are, they don't know the real faith of the Lord and they don't know the real Lord. That's sad because they do have a new birth experience in their spirit and their soul belongs to, to know God, but they're in bondage. And we who do know the Lord are able somewhat with the sword of the word to put to death that enemy of theirs and to set them free. And it's only through death that we find life. Now, I know this looks pretty gruesome here in chapter 32 about slaughtering all these people. But he that keepeth back his sword from blood is cursed, the Bible says. There's people out there who need to know and to understand that you have to do it gracefully. You have to do it gracefully. Or you won't do anything but fail. And God will give us grace to be able to speak to people and to come against their flesh with the sword of the word to set them free. But God has some faithful people here. When the golden calf was being worshipped, he had some faithful people. That was the Levites. Now God said back in Exodus 19 and 4, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagle's wings and brought you up unto myself. Don't that sound a lot like the eagle's wing that the woman went into the wilderness on in the book of Revelation 12? Well, that's a, a good type of shadow. That refers to Exodus chapter 19 and 5, which says, Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be mine own possession from among all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, everybody wasn't manifesting this at that time, were they? There is a condition here. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you're going to be my possession. Right now. Now remember that, my possession. Those who obey his voice and keep his covenant, they are the ones that are going to be his possession among all the people, and they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So let's think about that a minute. Those These Levites were definitely doing that. They were obeying God's voice. They were keeping his covenant, and they had to suffer too uh, because they were bringing the sword against their own brethren here. They had to suffer to do this, and they were definitely God's kingdom of priests. He said they would be mine. So we need to remember that. Go to Numbers chapter 3 and verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, And I behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that opens the womb among the children of Israel. And the Levites shall be mine. 
for all the firstborn are mine. And on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel. Well, we know that's true. When you were firstborn again in your spirit, that's the day the old man was crucified and the new man was given life. On the day, he says. So this is a clear parable about that. And both man and beast, mine they shall be. I am the Lord. Well, what's he saying here? What he's saying is they're mine. There's something special to him over and above the children of Israel who worship the golden calf. You reckon he did this because these people didn't worship the golden calf? That they were against it? Well, I expect that has something to do with it. But when the Lord talks about a group of people, and groups of people are quite often spoken of in the feminine form that are his, I think he's talking about the bride. The bride is taken from among the 12 tribes. So now in this case, it is Levi. But you know, sometimes it is the Philadelphia church that represents the brides. Sometimes it's Judah that represents the bride. So God uses different times and different parables to represent his bride, his people that are choosing to follow the real Lord. They've got the word of God for frontlets between their eyes and on the back of their head. They've got the renewed mind of the spirit that works with the spirit and not the works of the flesh. They choose not to worship another God, another Jesus, a convenient Jesus. Praise be to God. Turn with me now. Let's go to Numbers chapter 8, verse 14. Thus shalt thou separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. So you see there's a separation here of the Levites from among the children of Israel. And of course the bride is separated from the rest of Israel because she was the most beautiful. She was represented by her holiness, her righteousness, and her love for God in running after the Lord as in Song of Solomon. She has that ambition to be close to God and ambition to know more about God and to know what pleases God and to love him. You can't love him unless you keep his commandments according to what Jesus said. So, that person who really loves the Lord is that person who is separated from apostate Israel. And they are chosen to be his bride. Numbers 8 and chapter, uh, chapter 8 and verse 14 says, Thus shalt thou separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that shall the Levites go in and do the service of the ten of meetings, and thou shalt cleanse them and offer them for a wave offering. You know what a wave offering is? It's when they take the sheaf and they wave it up towards God, and then they bring it back down. That means given to God, but received back. You know, the Levites were given to God, but they were among men to do God's work. Given to God, but received back. Numbers 8 and 16, for they are wholly given unto me from among the children of Israel. Instead of all that opens the womb, even the firstborn of all the children of Israel, have I taken them unto me. So 
they represented the same thing as the firstborn. They represent the spiritual man. And you can say they represent those who have manifested the spiritual man. You know, when we were first born again, as they call it, it is actually only a portion of being born again. You're actually born again in your spirit only. But through your obedience, are you begotten again in your soul? According to the Apostle Peter, then if you have been faithful, you will be begotten again in a body. And then that's a new body. So God is in the process of creating sons of God that have nothing to do with the old man who is passing away. And they have everything to do with that totally new man, new spirit, new soul, and a new body. What he's saying is that instead of the firstborn, he chose the Levites because they have been found faithful to be the priests of his. And what does a priest do? Priests offer sacrifice. And what was sacrifice? Well, that old man was sacrificed. The Lord said he sacrificed the old man. So the faithful priest is the one who faithfully executes the office of a priest and sacrifices the flesh. The firstborn is just the first parable. And now he's telling you, okay, now we're starting a new parable here. And actually, the Levite is the firstborn, and they are mine. He wants you to see all the good, wonderful things about the firstborn. But at the same time, he wants you to apply that to the Levites. So instead of all that openeth the womb, he takes the Levites. Numbers 8 and verse 16. For they are wholly given unto me from among the children of Israel, instead of all that opens the womb, even the firstborn of all the children of Israel, have I taken them unto me. Folks, it's happening right now. God is drawing a people unto himself from among the children of Israel. And they have been separated from the children of Israel because they have been pleasing unto God and they have not worshipped the golden calf or another Jesus. And because they're faithful enough to use the sword against the old man, the flesh, and they don't mind persecution because they're using that sword against their brother to help them understand what's wrong and what's right. Numbers chapter 8 and verse 17 says, For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. And on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron. Aaron, as you know, is the high priest. And he's a type and a shadow of our Jesus. And now the Lord has given the Levites to Jesus. And so the Lord says the Levites had been given unto him, but now he's given them to Jesus and to his sons, the sons of God being manifested in whom Jesus lived, known as the man-child. So now he's saying that the Levites, in type and shadow, are being given unto the man-child and to his sons from among the children of Israel to do the service of the children of Israel in the tent of meeting. So that's going to be the ones that are the true ministers of God. Who is that? The man-child and the bride. 
They're going to be the true and they belong to the Lord. He said they are mine. They are sanctified. They are separated from among the children of Israel to be his bride. But they're going to minister to the children of Israel in the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the children of Israel. There ain't going to be no plagues among the children of Israel. When the children of Israel come nigh unto the sanctuary, they come nigh to the sanctuary, they're, they're protected. Psalm 91, remember that one? Well, amen. We want all the children of Israel to be able to draw nigh unto God in that sanctuary. But it's the Levite's responsibility to sanctify the people of God so that they might draw near unto God. You see, this is the same story we've looked at in the scriptures concerning the man-child raising up the bride and the bride raising up the church in order to bring them into the presence of the Lord. In Psalm 45 and Song of Solomon, the bride raises up her little sister in order to come into the presence of the Lord. It's going to take the same thing. It's going to take sanctification. And it's going to take a turning away from the golden calf. It's going to take submission to those people the Lord has raised up to bring us to that place. And real soon, you're going to see the man-child raised up and the bride's going to be the first one to begin to come into maturity. And because of her position with God and her pull with the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, She's going to intercede just like in the book of Esther for the people of God and God will hear. Glory to God. That's good news, folks. He's hearing the bride's prayers. She's going to intercede and the king is going to hear and grant her request. Well, why is it that God will hear her prayers and not the rest of the people of God? Because they've been following the golden calf and he's not that favorable. Unto them, he's basically said they have to die in the wilderness, didn't he? Now, we know that's true in at least one parable. They need to die in the wilderness. Otherwise, otherwise they ain't going to live unto God. And if you look at these parables in the flesh, they look pretty gruesome. But actually, they're making a very good type in something that we should be very uh, joyous about. The Levites taking up the sword and putting to death their brother is very needed and it's very necessary. And it's kind of like Jesus teaching his disciples to wash one another's feet. Another parable of sanctifying the walk of the brother. We ought always to determine to be useful to God in this regard. You know what? Pretty soon we're going to know who those entities are and it's going to be a wonderful thing. God's got a good plan for his people. Let's find out what the bride is. The, the Bible tells us in these verses in Revelation 21 and 9. And there came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls who were laden with the seven last plagues. And he spake with me saying, come hither. I will show thee the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That's the bride, Jerusalem. Now we also find it in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down 
out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And we've already learned about how Jerusalem is being born from above. Remember, it's first spirit, then soul, then body, in the body of the bride. The bride, of course, is God's holy people. But if you'll notice, the bride is Jerusalem. That's not the 12 tribes outside of Jerusalem. It is Jerusalem. Now, there's also a leader over that end-time spiritual Jerusalem about which we just read. Let's look at Jeremiah 30 and 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. And some of you out there right now, well, that happened back in the time when Jesus came to natural Jerusalem. Well, it sure did. Jesus was the son of David, and he came to sit upon David's throne, and it's spoken of here, Acts 2, 29. Brethren, I may say unto you freely of the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us unto this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God has sworn an oath to him, and that of the fruit of his loins, he would set one upon his throne. And he foreseeing this spake of the resurrection of the Christ. David was a prophet, and he referred to the throne of David that one who was born from his loins would sit upon. Well, let's think about that for a moment. David passed on his lineage, obviously in the natural way. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. Well, a woman in that case would marry. And in the end time, it's the woman of Revelation 12. The seed of the woman was Christ. Jesus was the son of man, and he was the son of God. He was the son of man in that he was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit. And in John chapter, chapter 3 and verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus' flesh came through Mary, and she was of the lineage of David. God can do it because the Bible says he would, that it would be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Now, inside the body of the son of David was the son of God. Jesus said that he was son of man and Son of God. The spiritual man on the inside was the Son of God dwelling in a body of the Son of David. That's a spiritual type for our day because this is what God said he was going to do again in the end time. He's raising up a Son of David. And if Jesus was the Son of David in his day, then we would have had to raise up seed through generations to our day in order to have another son of God called the man-child in whom he could live. So when David raised up seed originally, it was according to the flesh because those were the letter people of God. Everything they did was in the letter, in the flesh. But they represented a spiritual people of God in the New Testament. Well, we know that Jesus didn't have any children, according to the flesh. So when Jesus began to raise up seed, how did he do it? By the word of God. That seed, what he sowed, literally the sperma was the word of God, sown into our hearts to bring his fruit, the fruit of Christ. 
And since we know that there's always going to be a son of David sitting upon his throne, then Jesus was raising up seed. That is a spiritual seed of David. That's real interesting. The man child that we're talking about is a spiritual seed of David in whom Jesus lives. Because we're speaking of the manifestation of sonship where Christ is manifested in his people. Colossians one twenty seven, Christ in you, the hope of glory, glory to God. Now, remember what John the Baptist said when he saw all the disciples following Jesus. John chapter 3 and verse 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus, the man child there, was the groom, and the bride was those disciples who were following him. Praise God. Now, let me show you the relationship between the bride and the man-child. First of all, we found that the bride was Jerusalem, and we found that the man-child was David. David sits upon his throne in Jerusalem. Therefore, he's part of the bride. He's a member of the body of the bride. He's actually the head of the body of the bride on earth because he's in Jerusalem as the head of Jerusalem, which represents the bride. And now we see the relationship between the man-child and the bride. The head of the bride is the man-child. Christ, who was the man-child, is the head of the church. And we know that the church is is the larger body of all Israel, but the bride was Jerusalem. And that's why the Bible says, Arise ye and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. It represents a place of holiness, of separation from the world, above the world. It's holy. It's beautiful. And we see the relationship with David as the man-child with the bride. And we can say that the bride sits on the throne. The Bible speaks about both David and the bride is caught up to the throne. Though we're not talking about a casting away to heaven, as I'll explain later. Jesus Chapter 3, verse 17, at that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all the nations. And the nations, of course, is Gentiles. Shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord. So the throne in Jerusalem represent the name. And that's the nature, character, and authority. That's what the word name means, of the Lord. And it goes on and says, To Jerusalem neither shall they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. Now we notice that there was a throne in Jerusalem for the man-child. But also there was a throne in Jerusalem for the bride. Actually, we have a fulfillment of the marriage feast. In the marriage feast during the last seven days before they went to the groom's home, the bride and groom sat on the throne. Now, how's the Lord going to sit with the bride for seven days before going to the groom's home? Well, let me share that with you a little bit later down the line. But first, let's study Jeremiah a little bit deeper. Now, we see in Jeremiah 33 from verse 14 on down that the branch comes forth. When Jeremiah 23, 4 and 5 speaks about the new leadership that God was going to raise up, the new shepherds, the righteous shepherds, He calls him the branch in verses 5. And from there on down, he says the same thing that he says in chapter 33. So this corporate body of shepherds is the branch, 
which is the man child. Jeremiah 33 and 15, in those days and at that time will I cause a branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby she, well, in the original, that's what it says. Some first translators were afraid to translate it that way since they knew that David was a he and the branch was a he. But it says it's a she because it's a body of people. She shall be called the Lord our righteousness. It's a corporate name, the Lord our righteousness. Notice in uh, verse 17, For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Uh-oh. Now let me say that for thousands of years now, there had been a David sitting upon the throne. When Jesus came there, there was no David sitting upon the throne. Well, what Israel is God talking about when he promises that they will never want a king to sit upon the throne? He has to be talking about after the new covenant when everything changed. We found out that there was a nation of Israel after the new covenant. It had started. When the old nation of Israel was destroyed about the time of the end of the book of Acts, that nation was gone. Now let's read again in verse 17. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. That has to be the New Testament house of Israel. And I'll, let me show you why. Verse 18. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to burn meal offerings and to do sacrifice continually. And, of course, we are priests unto the Lord, aren't we? We offer burnt offerings. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God as we go through the fiery trials where the old man is burned up. That's the wood, the hay, and the stubble of that old man. We have a continual burnt offering, whereas natural Israel doesn't have a continual burnt offering. However, the continual burnt offering is going to be taken away from those who fall away from the Lord in the days to come. Second Thessalonians 2 and 3 says that. So we need to watch out for that, right? Then verse 19, And the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, if you could break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night so that there shall not be day and night in their season. That's the same thing he said a couple of chapters ago. It was after the new covenant started. He said that if day and night stopped, there wouldn't be a nation of Israel. Well, day and night hadn't stopped either, has it? There's been a nation of Israel since the time of Jesus. But that nation of Israel didn't start in 1948. It's the nation of all Israel, Romans 11. Now, he says the same thing about his King David here, verse 21. Then may also my covenant be broken with David, my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign upon his throne and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. Well, there has been night and day consecutively all through the New Testament. And when Jesus came, there was a son of David to rule on the throne. There has been the son of David ruling on the throne of God ever since. Our Lord Jesus said that once again he was going to raise up a David in the end time. That's a man child. 
and that he was going to come as a man child born to a woman in John 16. Now in Revelation 12, we see that promised David ministry being raised up and we see that man child born to a woman, that's the church, to lead the woman into the wilderness. Verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David, my servant. Now, this all has to have happened in the New Testament because there's no fulfillment in the Old Testament of God's promise that there would always be a David on the throne. So this has to have happened in Jesus' day as he sat upon the throne, ruled over spiritual born-again Israel. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and they followed him. John the Baptist looked at him and said, there's the bride, there's the bridegroom. That's in John 3.29. And the bridegroom was the man-child. Now, if you'll notice that in this new Israel, they're going to hear the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, Jeremiah 33 and 11. Well, where is the voice of the bridegroom going to be heard? Out of the man-child. Remember what Paul said in Romans 11.26, that he was going to send the deliverer out of Zion, and this was going to happen when the last of the Gentiles were being brought into the kingdom. And the remnant of the Jews was being restored to the same olive tree kingdom. Folks, we're in those days right now. Who is this deliverer? Well, David delivered Israel from the bondage to the Philistines and to the enemies round about. Now, let's keep on reading verse 22. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measures, so will I multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites that master unto me. He's going to multiply the seed of David. That is the corporate body of David, which is the branch that we see. It's the corporate body of the seed of David in verse 15. And those are the shepherds whom God said that he was going to raise up. In other words, Jesus has ruled upon the throne of David, but who was David? He was a physical man in whom the Lord lived. Who was Jesus? Jesus was the Son of Man, the Son of David, in whom the Spirit of the Son of God lived. Well, what is this David that he's multiplying in these days? Well, once again, he's talking about the physical man in whom Jesus lives. Well, who is it that lives in him? That's the bridegroom. Jesus. That's Jesus as the man-child. He was the bridegroom. John 3.29, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Well, what type was Jesus fulfilling here? Well, notice that the bride and the bridegroom were seen on the earth. And in our day, the truth is that the bride and the bridegroom are on the earth. Jesus said that he is going to come as a baby born to a woman, John 16.21. He's coming once again in the seed of David. And this time it's not sown a natural seed, it's sown a spiritual seed because that's how Jesus carried on his lineage, by the word of God. In other words, this is going to be a corporate body. Some people in whom the word of God lives. And if the word of God lives in them, then Jesus lives in them, right? They are the man-child in whom lives the bridegroom. And how is it that the bride and the room are going to sit on their throne, which is spiritual? New Testament, Jerusalem. For the last seven days before going to the groom's home, 
<coughs> excuse me, the seven days are the seven years of the tribulation. They are the 70th week of Daniel, Daniel 9, 27. The marriage feast lasts for those seven days, and the groom is going to be feasting with the bride for those seven days. Once again, the bride's not all of the 12 tribes, nor all of the seven women, the seven churches of Revelation. The bride is represented by only Jerusalem, and David was the head of Jerusalem. So that makes David the head of the bride. In fact, David was the head over all of the 12 tribes representing all the church. And we read in Esther, Song of Solomon, in Psalm 45, that the bride was the chosen among all the fair virgins. She is a chosen part of the larger church, and David is the head. He's the head of the bride. Like Christ is the head of the bride on earth and the head of the larger church company. So once again, the Lord is going to rule in an earthly head and over his earthly body. He's going to multiply the seed of David in these end times. He, speak, he speaks about it again in verse 25 about the covenant of day and night. If it stops, then God ain't going to do this. But since we still have day and night, then he is going to do it, right? Let's go on and read it in Jeremiah 33 and 26. Then will I also cast away the seed of Jacob and of David my servant, so that I will not take of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captivity to return and will have mercy on them. In the time when Joseph was the man-child, that's two years into the seven years of famine, Israel came out of the promised land and into Egypt. That's where Joseph revealed himself to them. He revealed himself to the remnant of Israel who came into Egypt, and he told them that there were yet five years left of this seven-year famine. That lets us know that during the tribulation, a remnant of Israel is going to come back. And again, join in with spiritual Israel in the olive tree. This has already started. And it's going to start happening in the second year of the tribulation. Now, remember, Joseph had a dream where all of his brothers and his dad were jealous. Then he told his brothers about the dream that he had about the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowing down unto him. He also told them his dream about the sheaves standing all around in a circle and all the 11 sheaves bowed down to his sheaf. What happened? They got jealous and angry. Even his father said, does that mean you're going to rule over us? Well, turned out Joseph was right, wasn't he? Joseph became their head. God had spoken to him that he was going to be a ruler over the house during the seven years of famine. It's going to happen again, folks. Ain't nobody going to be able to take credit for it because it's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. The seed of David, the flesh, it don't get any credit for what Jesus Christ on the inside does. And that's true of all of us. Folks, we're in, this is a wondrous thing that's about to happen. So get in the word of God and study and to show yourselves approved unto Christ. God bless you. I'm out of time. I'll see you again next time. God willing. My thirsting soul, purest water made me whole. Let your streams of mercy flow, oh Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall in.